Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, does Hollywood need new stories? The British actor David Oyelowo is known for taking on some of history's greatest names. Aged just 24, he became the first black man to play an English monarch, Henry VI, on stage for the Royal Shakespeare Company. But he's also established his presence, playing one of the most significant characters in recent American history. Ava DuVernay cast him as the civil rights leader, Martin Luther King, in her film, Selma. As long as I am unable to exercise my constitutional right to vote, I do not have command of my own life. I cannot determine my own destiny, for it is determined for me by people who would rather see me suffer than succeed. Those that have gone before us say, no more. But after a number of roles playing major characters of colour in history-based drama, Oyelowo now makes his directorial debut with a tale from ordinary life. The Waterman, released on Netflix, follows a young boy coping with the burden of grief and a strange relationship with his father, played by Oyelowo himself. This town is weird. (sighs) It's just different here than what we're used to. Yeah, real different. I know this move's been hard for you. That's been hard for your dad, too. He's just stressed about me. My guest is also on a quest to enhance the power of original storytelling in an era of endless prequels and sequels. He reckons Hollywood needs fresher takes and more diversity on screen, too. So how's he going to do it? David Oyelowo, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thanks for having me. So I've been totting up what you're up to recently, four films in the last year, three this year. In the pipeline, you've got movies, you've got TV series and biopics. You're either acting and directing or producing. You're obviously going for Hardest Working Man in Hollywood Award. Do you think you'd win it? (laughs) Uh, um, Well, you know, uh, I have four children and uh, four dogs and they all are very hungry. So <laughs> I have got to stay busy. No, I, the, the reality is I really, really love what I do. I love telling stories. I love staying busy. I'm very passionate about the impact and the effect storytelling has on society. And so, you know, while they'll have me, I'm trying to do as much uh, good damage as I can. I think that's a very wise principle. Get your good damage in while the going's good. And it certainly has been very productive for you in recent years. You're well established from roles like Martin Luther King Jr. in Selma and Javert in the BBC's adaptation of Les Miserables. Required Sunday night viewing that one, really. The Waterman is your directing debut. Is it an itch you always wanted to scratch or is it just another string to the bow to feed those hungry dogs and children? 
<laughs> it, it, it has been an, an itch I wanted to scratch. It was sort of more of a secretive one, really. I didn't go around talking about it that much, but it, it was always a, an ambition I harbored. I have intentionally been using my uh, experiences on film sets with great directors as my film school, really, knowing that at some point I hoped the opportunity would present itself. And that's what happened when The Waterman came along. You've played big, powerful characters, be it Martin Luther King, as well as the first president of Botswana and also Henry VI for the Royal Shakespeare Company. And yet you chose a story about a young geeky boy for your first film as director. It's not something with a big history calling card. And I wondered why that was. When you're in the middle of your own career, you're not necessarily thinking, okay, I'm, I'm primarily associated with these sort of biopic historical figure type roles. You're just sort of trying to ring the changes and keep the audience guessing. But I guess that is what I'm primarily associated with. And there are a few uh, folks who were a bit surprised as to uh, this choice of, of directorial debut. It was partly out of necessity, in all honesty. Um, the reason I gravitated towards The Waterman was because I had loved these kind of films growing up. E.T. was a formative film for me. The Goonies, Stand By Me, Willow, Never Ending Story. These were these were films that the VHSs in my parents' house were worn down with watching. I like that you confess to being from the VHS generation. Oh, I wear it with pride. I wear it with pride. I, I still have those VHSs. They are antiques now. You can barely even see the writing on them. They've, they've been worn down so much. Now that I have kids of my own, I find myself having to go back to, to those films to show them those kind of films. And so I was looking for, for something of that nature because I really think it's a, a missed business opportunity, the fact that our uh, our industry isn't making those films. You can make them at a reasonable price. You know, they are films for the whole family. If they're if made well, they're films that, you know, families can come back to time and again. And so The Waterman came my way. I was very passionate about the idea of the family at the center of this narrative being a black family. Because even though I loved those films I mentioned earlier, I was never reflected in them. My kids were never reflected in them, even when I showed them films like E.T. And, and The Goonies. And so that's one of the things I really wanted to contribute to this genre, as it were, this sort of coming of age adventure genre. What happened over the four years of us um, putting together this film, we lost our director. And so out of necessity, I had to step in to direct. There was a sort of confluence of this harbored secret that I wanted to direct, the right projects coming along, and then the fact that if I didn't step into the director's chair, the project may have fallen apart. And so that's how it came about. At the heart of the story is the lead character Gunner is an ordinary boy on a mission to save his mother who has leukaemia. And I wondered how that story, which in some ways you know, it's at the outer edge of experience you can have as a child, but it does happen. I'm sure it happened to me. Oh, wow. That really, you know, resonated with me that you'd chosen a thing which is extreme and brings a child to the extremes of emotion and anxiety and the desire to be a kind of superhero. But it's not part of the kind of swathe of superhero films that we've seen aimed at, at kids. It's like you wanted to create a real-life version of that. Am I... Near the mark. You're very near the mark. And the only thing I'd say is that it's not as extreme as we care to think. I mean, you had that experience. 
I had that experience, though be it when I was older. My mum passed away four years ago, having had a brain aneurysm, and she was in a vegetative state for three years before she eventually passed away. Now, I wasn't a child when it happened, but whether you're four or 40, you know, there is, there is, there is a relationship a child has with their parent that, you know, age doesn't really alter that much in terms of the effect it has on you, in terms of how desirous you are to save them, to have them live forever. Those emotions are, are, are very transposable, regardless of whether you're a child or an, an adult. Here we are coming out of the pandemic as well, a, a time in which there is, I would argue, almost not a single person on the planet who hasn't in some way been affected by the theme of illness, death, uncertainty, challenge to family, loss. It is something that if you live long enough, you will encounter. And I actually think storytelling in more recent years, especially when it comes to film, has become quite disingenuous with how truthful we've chosen to be about that theme. I mean, Disney literally built its brand on the loss of a parent, uh, whether it be Bambi or The Lion King. Um, you know, it, it, is just, it is just one of those themes that is a life theme. And, um, and so I, it's, it's, it's universal. And that's why I, I, I also was gra gravitated to this story. It's a very good point that if you, you go back to the sort of sedimentary layer of the, the family film, it is built on that. And it's built on the, the fear of that. And sometimes it's the reality and sometimes it's it, it's the fear of, of loss. The Waterman is built as a family film, but it does tackle very grown-up themes and not, not only death, grief, abuse. It makes it something of a heavier, demanding watch at times. Did that make you worried at all that you might not be able to hit that target of being a family film while you were trying to be so ambitious about the emotional content? Not really, because again, those seminal films for me all did the same thing. If you watch E.T., for instance, it literally starts with a family where the husband and father has just abandoned his family. Um, and the protagonist, the boy that we are going to follow through this narrative, is dealing with that loss. I, I think sometimes we forget why some of these seminal, brilliant, timeless versions of these stories are so resonant for us. It's because the emotional intelligence of the protagonists who happen to be children are not undermined or, or patronized in any way. And that what's, is what makes them perennials. That's what makes them identifiable by with, for kids and for grown-ups because those themes are, are universal and are not tied purely to the child's experience. And you've set up a production company. It's called Yoruba Saxon with your wife, Jessica. You've signed a deal with Walt Disney. And the mission statement says values-based content. Now, what is that, given that all films, or at least films that are not intended to be total schlocky rubbish, have values at the heart of them, right? So there's no such thing as a, as a film that can be made without a, a set of values underlying it. But what did you have in mind that was specific to what you wanted to do? 
Well, again, if we were going to be totally honest, the, the schlocky nonsense that you're talking about is in more films than we care to admit. I mean, you know, a, a lot of entertainment is very disposable and is vacuous and is about those two hours you have the audience's attention, but there's no real meaning behind it. Uh, what we're trying to do at Yoruba Saxon is is make films that elicit a conversation, make films that show a representation of the marginalized in a way that normalizes it so that that has the cultural impact of breaking down prejudice because you're seeing different perspectives than you're used to seeing. So we are looking for morality tales, cautionary tales, things that have both magic and meaning. It sounds like you think a lot of the film industry, perhaps in particular that aimed at younger viewers, is a bit grubby, underambitious, but perhaps even worse than that. I mean, what don't you like? It's not, is it a bit of a reaction to something that you really have not liked when you've seen it and thought, I don't want my kids seeing that? Well, I have four kids. They range from the age of nine to 19. And it's really interesting watching them watch the content that is being put in front of them. And often they are dissatisfied. Often they are gravitating towards, to be perfectly frank, not movies and not TV shows. They are looking at this bite-sized content on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram or, or whatever because it's, it's instant gratification. Are you being a bit polite about what you don't like? Have you watched something and thought, I really don't like that film or that television series? No, I, I'm not. I'm not being polite. I'm being. I'm being generalized for a reason. I, I think Hollywood has lost its way when it comes to what what young people actually want to watch. Now, I think the streamers are doing a better job because they have data and they have algorithms that are informing them as to what people are actually watching as opposed to a presupposed perception based upon someone's opinion who isn't a young person, who doesn't have the connection to those young people that they should, but has a job title that means that they basically can be the gatekeeper, the curator of what those young people are supposedly watching. So when you have Marvel, for instance, who are, you know, doing a pretty good job of corralling my kids' attention, the tricky thing there is it's one of the only shows in town and they are bleeding that treasure chest for all it's worth until the wheels fall off and as they should. But, you know, there should be a diversity of of stories and heroes and perspectives for young people to gravitate towards in this space. And I'm just saying that there is definitely a lot of opportunity being left on the table. The Waterman has very strong Christian morals uh, at its core. You, you and your wife are both practising Christians. There's a mention of heaven in the opening scenes. The final scene is a family praying. And it's interesting that that does rather stand out among the, the run of the offers of the way we look at religion or perhaps Christianity in, in this regard. Is this something that you think can translate globally? Because there's obviously a challenge there, isn't there? There's a time when people are quite suspicious of being kind of preached to. Absolutely. But the, the reality is that there is a big discrepancy between 
um, the entertainment industry, the media industry, even you and I having a conversation and your average person out there, what they believe, what their values are and what they gravitate towards. Um, you know, so many families, most families I know, certainly outside of Los Angeles, London, New York, will say grace before they, before they eat. Um, that's the prayer that is essentially at the end of the film. So it's a, a fairly universal practice. And I think the conversation around um, heaven and, you know, where do we go when we die? I, I don't think there's a parent who is doing a good job on planet Earth who will not at some point have a form of that conversation with their with their children. I, I wondered because you've you've spoken before about praying for guidance about your own life and about your own roles, whether you think that Christianity and perhaps even religion beyond Christianity is somewhat pushed to the margins, particularly in worlds, and, and you've touched on it really. I, I, I'm sensitive about how I describe it, but smaller liberal societies or uh, places that consider themselves progressive. There's quite a lot, if you look at a presentation of a lot of, Christianity on American-made television series and film. It's at the extremes, isn't it? It's at the extremes of a kind of nationalism or something to be a bit wary of. Did you feel you wanted to correct the balance? Well, I think there are two strands of Christianity from a point of view of perception. There is the hard-lined, conservative, politicised version of Christianity, which has been co-opted by politics. That has nothing to do with my belief system or even the Bible, I would argue. And, the, and then there is, you know, the experiential Christianity that is steeped in, you know, a relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship with God, a, a relationship with the core value of Christianity, which is sacrificial love. Greater love hath no man than to lay his life down for his friend. That is one of the big themes of The Waterman, this 11-year-old kid who decides, I'm going to do everything I can to save my mom. You know, that's a core Christian value. And I think that's something anyone and everyone can admire outside of the politicized version of Christianity. And that's what I subscribe to. That's what I live my life by. And how hard is it to get original productions like this off the ground? If you take the, one of the big films of the summer, Cruella is the prequel to 101 Dalmatians, of course. There's a lot of writing about saying that stories are just being rehashed. One view of this that struck me was Dana Schwartz, the She-Hulk writer, saying people who think Hollywood has run out of ideas are snobs. Which side of that divide do you fall on? I don't think it's that Hollywood has run out of ideas. I think Hollywood has run out of faith, faith in the audience, faith in original stories. They've, they've, they are cowards when it comes to the audience's ability to gravitate towards something new. And so because it is a fear-driven industry, um, you are consistently going back to the well of what has been done before in order to basically keep a hold of your job and make sure that your pool guy can still be paid. And that's what is driving the decision a lot of the time. And that is not the foundation on which Hollywood was built. That is not 
what is ultimately going to keep this business going. And that is why you are seeing the studios falter while streamers are gaining in momentum. The thing that is really getting audiences excited is original content with different perspectives in ways that we haven't seen them packaged before. But what happens is these companies get to a certain size, they get conservative, fear-driven, and then they start to force-feed the audience that which has been essentially regurgitated before, and they then are surprised when interest starts to wane. Well, there is a reason why I get excited when I see Netflix original, as opposed to a studio rehash or remake or reboot. But don't you worry about this when you look at the impact that the pandemic alone has had on cinemas? And and this is a tendency that predates COVID-19. AMC, the world's largest cinema chain, lost $4.6 billion during the lockdowns. That's uh, an awful lot of uh, pool guys to be paid, isn't it? Uh, can you see cinema bouncing back? Because there just is a counterfactual, isn't there? Why would a family go to the cinema, pay for expensive tickets uh, often, all those extras, when they can curl up on the sofa, they don't have to go out and about and worry about how they're going to get home. And they've got the streaming platforms, as you say, putting out a, a lot of materials. Does it the end of the, the big screen experience? The audience don't care and they shouldn't care because they're the winners. They are getting to see great content at home on bigger screens than we did when we were younger. When I look at the, 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 the screen that I watched E.T. on, it's about six times smaller than the screen I now have at home. Um, and so... I think we're all coming round to yours in that case. <laughs> You're very welcome. The reason I say that is because the same thing happened when we went from silent movies to talkies, from black and white to color. There are always these scary moments where change comes along. But if you don't roll with the punches, if you don't respond to what the audience actually want, you know, you have to decide whether you want to be blockbuster or Netflix. Blockbuster had the chance to buy Netflix early on and they thought it wasn't going to last. They thought it wasn't a good business model and they chose not to. Blockbuster no longer exists. Netflix definitely does. At the end of the day, my preoccupation as a content creator is eyeballs. The audience are now dictating how they want to see it, when they want to see it, how much of it they want to see at any given time. That's just something that we can't turn the, the clock back on. You've talked about racism in, in your own life that your parents faced as Nigerian immigrants to the United Kingdom. Uh, you've got four children with your wife, Jessica, who's white. You bring up your family in LA today. How much has changed and do you think there's the long promised opportunities for people of colour, which do seem now to be burgeoning in film and TV? Are you satisfied that it is getting more opportunity to the people who deserve it most? I'm far from satisfied. Um, there's definitely the kind of change that is encouraging. When I say I'm far from satisfied, I'm saying that because we are living still under circumstances that are centuries old. They are a human construct and they should never have been put in place. And we are still trying to get to a place of equilibrium. But there are signs that there is an openness. There are signs that there is genuine change. But, you know, it's a little bit when I see statistics like the top 100 films in Hollywood, only 15 percent were directed by women. It's better than when it was 7%, but it's still shameful when, you know, 
through God's providence and wisdom, largely speaking, we're at 50-50 when it comes to men and women. So why on earth are we patting ourselves on the back when it's at 15% rather than 7 It's wrong, it's disgraceful, and it needs to get to a place of, of equality super fast. And so um, I am not in the business of patting Hollywood on the back when it comes to that because it's been disgraceful for so long. You said a few years ago that if you'd seen a film like A United Kingdom, which is the, the film that, that you made when you were leaving drama school, I don't think I'd be living in America now. I suppose the implication was when you came out of, of drama school, you felt that you needed to go to, to Hollywood to find opportunity. Well, it's a great place to have the opportunity to go, but would you make the same decision based on, on what you were reflecting on there if the changes had come earlier? Absolutely. And, and it wasn't just because I, I, it was a perception of, of the opportunities that might be afforded me um, in, in America. It was based on the reality of what I was dealing with. You know, I did this show Spooks, which, um, you know, did very well in the UK. And there was a clear moment where um, I think if my color was different, I would have been elevated to be the lead on that show. And the choice was made to not take that opportunity. And I was being asked to stay, to remain in the role I had started out as, a role that I loved playing and I completely understood and I thought it was right that I started where I did. But, you know, three years in with... Matthew McFadden exiting with Keely Hawes exiting and there being a clear vacancy of who should now lead that show, both story-wise and in terms of what I had done on the show, I felt, you know, it made complete sense for me to um, be afforded that opportunity. And the choice was made to not do that. Did, did you feel angry about that? Because obviously your career has gone on and flourished, but these things... Leave a mark. Does it still rankle with you when you're talking to people who were involved with or back people involved with the show at the time or commissioners? It was offensive to me because the revolving door of white actors who came on to fill that that space after I left was indicative of and confirming um, of what the thinking was. Now I loved doing spooks, but you know we were still in a time where. Um, inherent bias, unconscious bias was driving a lot of the decision making. I knew I had the ability to step into that position. And I almost instantaneously came to America and was able to prove that, you know, that, that I could be a leading man, that it wasn't the audience, as it was subtly said to me, you know, that the audience weren't ready for someone like me to take that role. I just knew that wasn't true. Um, and the only place I saw evidence of that not being true was in Hollywood. But if, that's, if that is true, I mean, I, I do understand the logic, but when uh, you credit Selma as boosting your career and it obviously introduced you to a much wider audience, even than, than those of us who uh, watched you in Spooks religiously every Friday night, I don't think I could have got through the early years of my children's life without it. Selma's of a different order and it missed out on winning an Oscar in 2014. It was a very profound film. It was a very well-made film. And there was a uh, protest against that. But after the year of racial reckoning that we've just seen in America, do you think it would be treated in that way if it was released now? 
No, I don't think he would be treated in that that way now because Selma helped move the conversation forward. Selma started the the online protest that was Oscar So White when in the year that um, Selma came out, there were 20 opportunities to nominate um, uh, actors of color and none of them were taken. And that happened two years in a row. And as I say, Selma started that and it was the protestation of the public, not, this is why I don't credit Hollywood with any real change or desire for it. You know, those decisions are driven by money or they're driven by the audience saying, we will no longer vote with our eyeballs or our money unless you change. And so it was social media that drove the Academy and Hollywood to really take a long, hard look at itself. My point is that unless you push Unless you hold people accountable by virtue of the fact that you will not accept the lies and the insidious reasons for marginalizing people, it will not change. I could have stayed and and done spooks. I could be still there now, but it wouldn't have changed things. And so that's also part of what I'm trying to do. Uh, colorblind casting, so-called, and even that phrase is a bit bit debatable. But the you know, the idea that we should absolutely widen out access to roles—it's been a big feature of Netflix hits like Bridgerton in the UK. We've had a Black Anne Boleyn in the Great Saga of Henry VIII and all those wives. I wonder whether, in some ways, this casting is a bit easier because these parts are so far back in history. What, do you find any kind of difficulties or areas where you think the call is a harder one? I mean, could the crown? for instance, hire a black actor to play Princess Anne or Prince Charles? Do you run into some sort of credibility gap at some point? You absolutely do. And I I personally am not someone who is looking to play a role on film that when you flip it, makes it feel like one is being hypocritical because I do find it offensive when I see Laurence Olivier playing Othello because of the specificity of that role and what it is trying to say. Try the crown example then. Does it work? Because that in some ways might also be seen as a bit forced to say, I mean, you could, I'm sure you'd find excellent actors to fulfil these roles for, among people of colour, actors of colour. But there might you might start to run into a sort of, is this a bit uh, confected? Is it a, a gap that is really too hard to, to breach to have a recent big American historical character, right? Chose the crown because everyone knows it. Black Prince Charles, yes, no. Well, that's why I say it's to do with the perspective. When you look at what Lin-Manuel Miranda did with Hamilton, there is something specific to what he's trying to say about American history in casting people of color in that production. There is something germane to the storytelling that makes that work. If it is doing it just for shock's sake, then I think the wheels fall off. You talk about um, me as Javert um, in, in Les Mis. There are people who, you know, took umbrage with that. But what they're failing to recognize is that there were black people, you know, um, in French life at that time. They weren't all marginalized, browbeaten slaves. Some of them were in, in the military. Some of them would have had the job, the likes of which my character does in that in that show. But, you know, we, we seldom see it. What about the black Bond? Could we have a, a black James Bond? Or is it so integral to the kind of 
the whiteness of that character within British intelligence, the British class system. Indeed, if yes, how would you fancy a go at it? Because I, you know, I could fix up that addition easily. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate that, Anne. Um, Again, you know, if there was something about Bond that meant that his whiteness was germane to why that character is who and what they are, then fine. That doesn't seem to be the case to me. But the thing I always come back to around the the Bond conversation is what the, the fact that we keep on and I keep on being asked about it. What that proves is that the audience is ready. They want to see themselves reflected. Whether, you know, myself or Idris or whoever go on to play Bond or not, what should happen is that those kind of opportunities should be afforded people of color because there is a reason it keeps on coming up. And you see that with Bridgerton, for instance. There is a there is a desire to sort of see different kinds of people under different kinds of circumstances, not just for white people, but for everyone. Everyone, you know, variety is the spice of life. That is not just a cliche or a saying, it is a fact. And, and that is what I think, you know, the audience gravitate towards. Shaken, not stirred with David Yellow. <laughs> um, I'm not in a hurry to play Bond myself because, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I'm really looking to continue to ring the changes as much as possible. You know, the minute you get stuck in any kind of franchise, in some ways it opens things up and it shuts other things down. Um, you know, I will say never say never because it's silly to, to say that. And then two years from now, I'm playing Bond and you're saying you're playing this recording back to me. But, you know, I, I, there, there is something to be said for, you know, for me anyway. I'm, I'm really here and I, I truly believe part of my purpose here is to, I hate using this phrase in relation to the Bond quote, but it's to stir things up, is to try and keep pushing the envelope so that the world looks different than I found it when I was a 12-year-old watching E.T. on VHS, loving it, but not seeing myself represented within it. That was actually going to be my last question. So you've rather brilliantly brought us in, into land. Uh, you've got your VHS collection. I've got mine and I do have your books on there. So I'm going to get, the, get them out uh, again at the end of the week. Let's imagine that, that you can still find anything to play it on and that uh, the end of the world is nigh and you're only allowed to take a VHS and a player. Uh, like it's obviously a rather odd end of the world. What are you going to take with you? Oh, gosh. Well, my, my favourite films, the films I just can't get enough of, I mean, There Will Be Blood is just such an incredible piece of acting and filmmaking, in my opinion. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis is my favourite actor of all time. And when I talk about trying to keep ringing the changes, you know, he is someone who, to me, exemplifies that. You just cannot predict which way he's going to go next. The idea that he is retired, I'm hopeful, is a lie. And he's just sort of dangling that carrot, you know, because next time he comes, he's going to come swinging. Anything with him, that, that would be my, that would be in my collection. I just think he's magnificent. I'm going to take Wings of Desire by Wim Wenders. And so we could always, you know, we could have a very small library swap if we end up on a desert island. Those would keep us nourished. I think we'd be good. David Oyelo, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. I had a good time. Thanks, Anne. And we'd love to know what you think. Do you have a beloved VHS you can't throw away, even if you no longer have the tape player, or perhaps you need to ask your parents? And who should be the next Bond? 
we let you make the call. Write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. Don't forget that The Economist's excellent books and arts team deliver the latest from the cultural world. Read more from them on our website, including a review on the books extolling the virtues of talking to strangers. And maybe stop being such a stranger to The Economist by signing up to be a subscriber today. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes. My producer today was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.